0: Section twenty nine of the Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, The Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, The Warren Commission Report, by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy chapter 6 investigation of possible conspiracy part 6 socialist labor party oswald also wrote to the socialist labor party in new york in november 1962 requesting literature horace twyford a national committee man at large for the party in the state of texas was informed by the new york headquarters in july 1963 of oswald's request and on September 11, 1963, he did mail literature to Oswald at his old post-office box in Dallas. On his way to Mexico City in September 1963, Oswald attempted to contact Twyford at his home in Houston. Oswald spoke briefly with Twyford's wife, identifying himself as a member of the Fair Play for Cuba committee, but since Twyford was out of town at the time, Oswald was unable to speak with him, Arnold Peterson, National Secretary and Treasurer of the Socialist Labor Party, has stated that a search of the records at the national headquarters reveals no record pertaining to Oswald. He explained that letters requesting literature are routinely destroyed. The Socialist Party, Social Democratic Federation, has also advised that a review of its records fails to reflect any information or correspondence pertaining to Oswald. Fair Play for Cuba Committee During the period Oswald was in New Orleans, from the end of April to late September 1963, he was engaged in activity purportedly on behalf of the now-defunct Fair Play for Cuba Committee, FPCC, an organization centered in New York which was highly critical of U.S. policy toward the Cuban government under Fidel Castro, In May 1963, after having obtained literature from the FPCC, Oswald applied for and was granted membership in the organization. When applying for membership, Oswald wrote to National Headquarters that he had "...been thinking about renting a small office at my own expense for the purpose of forming an FPCC branch here in New Orleans. Could you give me a charter?" With his membership card, Oswald apparently received a copy of the Constitution and By-laws for FPCC chapters, and a letter, dated May 29th, which read in part as follows, with spelling as in original. It would be hard to conceive of a chapter with as few members as seem to exist in the New Orleans area. I have just gone through our files and find that Louisiana seems somewhat restricted for fair play activities. However, with what is there, perhaps you could build a larger group, if a few people would undertake the disciplined responsibility of concrete organizational work. We certainly are not at all adverse to a very small chapter, but certainly would expect that there would be at least twice the amount needed to conduct a legal executive board for a chapter. Should this be reasonable, we could readily issue a charter for a New Orleans chapter of FPCC. In fact, we would be very, very pleased to see this take place, and would like to do everything possible to assist in bringing it about. You must realize that you will come under tremendous pressures with any attempt to do FPCC work in that area, and that you will not be able to operate in the manner which is conventional here in the Northeast. Even most of our big city chapters have been forced to abandon the idea of operating an office in public, most chapters have discovered that it is easier to operate semi-privately out of a home and to maintain a post office box for all mailings and public notices a p.o box is a must for any chapter in the organization to guarantee continued contact with the national even if an individual should move or drop out we do have a serious and often violent opposition and this procedure helps prevent many unnecessary incidents which frighten away prospective supporters, I definitely would not recommend an office, at least not one that will be easily identifiable to the lunatic fringe in your community. Certainly I would not recommend that you engage in one at the very beginning, but wait and see how you can operate in the community through several public experiences." Thereafter, Oswald informed National Headquarters that he had opened Post Office Box No. 30061, and that, against its advice, he had decided to take an office from the very beginning. He also submitted copies of a membership application form and a circular headed Hands Off Cuba, which he had printed, and informed the Headquarters that he intended to have membership cards for his chapter printed, which he subsequently did he wrote three further letters to the New York office to inform it of his continued activities. In one he reported that he had been evicted from the office he claimed to have opened, so that he worked out of a post-office box, and by using street demonstrations and some circular work, sustained a great deal of interest, but no new members. Oswald did distribute the handbills he had printed on at least three occasions— Once, while doing so, he was arrested and fined for being involved in a disturbance with anti-Castro Cuban refugees, one of whom he had previously met by presenting himself as hostile to Premier Castro in an apparent effort to gain information about anti-Castro organizations operating in New Orleans. When arrested, he informed the police that his chapter had thirty-five members, his activities received some attention in the New Orleans press, and he twice appeared on a local radio program, representing himself as a spokesman for the Fair Play for Cuba committee. After his return to Dallas, he listed the FPCC as an organization authorized to receive mail at his post office box. Despite these activities, the FPCC chapter, which Oswald purportedly formed in New Orleans, was entirely fictitious. VINCENT T. LEE, FORMERLY NATIONAL DIRECTOR OF THE FAIR PLAY FOR CUBA COMMITTEE, HAS TESTIFIED THAT THE NEW YORK OFFICE DID NOT AUTHORIZE THE CREATION OF A NEW ORLEANS CHAPTER, NOR DID IT PROVIDE OSWALD WITH FUNDS TO SUPPORT HIS ACTIVITIES THERE. THE NATIONAL OFFICE DID NOT WRITE TO OSWALD AGAIN AFTER ITS LETTER OF MAY twenty-ninth, AS DISCUSSED MORE FULLY IN CHAPTER Seven. OSWALD'S LATER LETTERS TO THE NATIONAL OFFICE purporting to inform it of his progress in New Orleans, contained numerous exaggerations about the scope of his activities and the public reaction to them. There is no evidence that Oswald ever opened an office as he claimed to have done, although a pamphlet taken from him at the time of his arrest in New Orleans contains the rubber-stamp imprint, F.P.C.C. 544 Camp Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, Investigation has indicated that neither the Fair Play for Cuba committee nor Lee Harvey Oswald ever maintained an office at that address. The handbills and other materials bearing the name of the Fair Play for Cuba committee were printed commercially by Oswald without the approval of the national headquarters. Oswald's membership card in the New Orleans chapter of the committee carried the signature of A.J. Hiddell, purportedly the president of the chapter, but there is no evidence that an A. J. Hiddell existed, and, as pointed out in Chapter 4, there is conclusive evidence that this name was an alias which Oswald used on various occasions. Marina Oswald herself wrote the name Hiddell on the membership card at her husband's insistence. No other member of the so-called New Orleans chapter of the committee has ever been found— The only occasion on which anyone other than Oswald was observed taking part in these activities was on August 9, 1963, when Oswald and two young men passed out leaflets urging hands-off Cuba on the streets of New Orleans. One of the two men, who was sixteen years old at the time, has testified that Oswald approached him at the Louisiana State Employment Commission, and offered him two dollars for about an hour's work. He accepted the offer, but later, when he noticed that television cameras were being focused on him, he obtained his money and left. He testified that he had never seen Oswald before and never saw him again. The second individual has never been located, but according to the testimony of the youth who was found, he too seemed to be someone not previously connected with Oswald. Finally, the FBI has advised the commission that its information on undercover Cuban activities in the New Orleans area reveals no knowledge of Oswald before the assassination. Right-wing groups hostile to President Kennedy the Commission also considered the possibility that there may have been a link between Oswald and certain groups which had bitterly denounced President Kennedy and his policies prior to the time of the President's trip to Dallas. As discussed in Chapter 2, two provocative incidents took place concurrently with President Kennedy's visit, and a third but a month prior thereto, These incidents were, one, the demonstration against the Hon. Adlai E. Stevenson, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, in late October 1963, when he came to Dallas on United Nations Day, two, the publication in the Dallas Morning News on November 22nd of the full-page black-bordered paid advertisement entitled Welcome, Mr. Kennedy, and three, the distribution of a throwaway handbill entitled Wanted for Treason throughout Dallas on November twentieth and twenty first. Oswald was aware of the Stevenson incident. There is no evidence that he became aware of either the Welcome mr Kennedy advertisement or the Wanted for Treason handbill, though neither possibility can be precluded. The only evidence of interest on Oswald's part in rightist groups in Dallas was his alleged attendance at a rally at the Dallas Auditorium, the evening preceding Ambassador Stevenson's address on United Nations Day, October twenty-fourth, 1963. On the evening of October twenty-fifth, 1963, at the invitation of Michael Payne, Oswald attended a monthly meeting of the Dallas Chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, in which he was later to seek membership. During the course of the discussion at this meeting, a speaker mentioned Major General Edwin A. Walker, resigned U.S. Army, Oswald arose in the midst of the meeting to remark that, a night or two nights before, he had attended a meeting at which General Walker had spoken in terms that led Oswald to assert that General Walker was both anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic. General Walker testified that he had been the Speaker at a rally the night before Ambassador Stevenson's appearance but that he did not know and had never heard of Oswald prior to the announcement of his name on radio and television on the afternoon of November twenty-second, Oswald confirmed his attendance at the UN Day Rally in an undated letter he wrote to Arnold Johnson, Director of the Information and Lecture Bureau of the Communist Party, mailed November first, 1963, in which he reported, On October 23, I had attended an ultra-right meeting headed by General Edwin A. Walker, who lives in Dallas. This meeting preceded by one day the attack on A. E. Stevenson at the United Nations Day meeting at which he spoke. As you can see, political friction between left and right is very great here. In light of Oswald's attack upon General Walker on the evening of April 10, 1963, discussed in Chapter 4, as well as Oswald's known political views, his asserted attendance at the political rally at which General Walker spoke may have been induced by many possible motives. However, there is no evidence that Oswald attended any other rightist meetings or was associated with any politically conservative organizations, While the black-bordered Welcome, Mr. Kennedy advertisement in the November twenty-second Dallas Morning News, which addressed a series of critical questions to the President, probably did not come to Oswald's attention, it was of interest to the Commission because of its appearance on the day of the assassination and because of an allegation made before the Commission concerning the person whose name appeared as the chairman of the committee sponsoring the advertisement. The black-bordered advertisement was purported to be sponsored by the American Fact-Finding Committee, which was described as an unaffiliated and nonpartisan group of citizens who wish truth. Bernard Wiseman was listed as chairman, and post office box in Dallas was the only address. The commission has conducted a full investigation into the genesis of this advertisement and the background of those responsible for it, Three of the four men chiefly responsible—Bernard W. Weissman, William B. Burley Third, and Larry H. Schmidt— had served together in the U.S. Army in Munich, Germany, in 1962. During that time they had, with others, devised plans to develop two conservative organizations—one political and the other business— the political entity was to be named Conservativism USA, or C-U-S-A, CUSA, and the business entity was to be named American Business, or A-M-B-U-S, AMBUS. While in Munich, according to Weissman, they attempted to develop in their own minds ways to build up various businesses that would support us and at the same time support our political activities. According to a subsequent letter from Schmidt to Weissman. CUSA was founded for patriotic reasons rather than for personal gain, even though, as a side effect, AMBUS was to have brought great return, as any business endeavor should. To establish their organizations, Weissmann testified that they had planned while in Munich that in order to accomplish our goals, to try to do it from scratch would be almost impossible, because it would be years before we could even get the funds to develop a powerful organization— So we had planned to infiltrate various right-wing organizations, and by our own efforts to become involved in the hierarchy of these various organizations, and eventually get ourselves elected or appointed to various higher offices in these organizations, and by doing this bring in some of our own people, and eventually take over the leadership of these organizations, and at that time having our people in these various organizations, we would then, you might say, call a conference, and have them unite. And while no one knew of the existence of CUSA aside from us, we would then bring them all together, unite them, and arrange to have it called CUSA. Schmidt was the first to leave the service. Settling in Dallas in October 1962, he became a life insurance salesman, and quickly engaged in numerous political activities in pursuit of the objectives devised in Munich, He became affiliated with several organizations and prepared various political writings. Upon their release from the military, Weissman and Burley did not immediately move to Dallas, although repeatedly urged to do so by Schmidt. On October 1, 1963, Schmidt wrote Weissman, Adlai Stevenson is scheduled to be here on the 24th on UN Day, Kennedy is scheduled in Dallas on November 24th, there are to be protests. All the big things are happening now. If we don't get in right now, we may as well forget it. The day of the Stevenson demonstration, Schmidt telephoned Weissman, again urging him to move to Dallas. Recalling that conversation with Schmidt, Weissman testified, and he said, if we're going to take advantage of the situation, you'd better hurry down here and take advantage of the publicity, and at least become known among these various right-wingers, because this is the chance we have been looking for to infiltrate some of these organizations and become known, in other words, go along with the philosophy we had developed in Munich. Five days later, he wrote to Weisman and Burley to report that, as the only organizer of the demonstration to have publicly identified himself, he had become, overnight, a fearless spokesman and a leader of the right wing in Dallas. What I worked so hard for in one year, and nearly failed— finally came through one incident in one night. He ended, Politically, Kusa is set. It is now up to you to get Ambus going. Weissman and Burley accepted Schmidt's prompting and traveled to Dallas, arriving on November 4, 1963. Both obtained employment as carpet salesmen. At Schmidt's solicitation, they took steps to join the John Birch Society, and through Schmidt they met the fourth person involved in placing the November 22nd advertisement, Joseph P. Grinnen, Dallas independent oil operator, and a John Birch Society coordinator in the Dallas area. Within a week to ten days after Weissman and Burley had arrived in Dallas, the four men began to consider plans regarding President Kennedy's planned visit to Dallas. Wiseman explained the reason for which it was decided that the ad should be placed. After the Stevenson incident, it was felt that a demonstration would be entirely out of order, because we didn't want anything to happen in the way of physical violence to President Kennedy when he came to Dallas. But we thought that the conservatives in Dallas, I was told, were a pretty downtrodden lot after that, because they were being oppressed by the local liberals because of the Stevenson incident, we felt we had to do something to build up the morale of the conservative element in Dallas, so we hit upon the idea of the ad. Weissman, Schmidt, and Grinan worked on the text for the advertisement. A pamphlet containing 50 questions critical of American policy was employed for this purpose, and was the source of the militant questions contained in the ad attacking President Kennedy's administration, Grinnan undertook to raise the one thousand four hundred sixty five dollars needed to pay for the ad. He employed a typed draft of the advertisement to support his fund solicitation. Grinnan raised the needed money from three wealthy Dallas businessmen, Edgar R. Chrissy, Nelson Bunker Hunt, and H. R. Bright, some of whom in turn collected contributions from others. At least one of the contributors would not make a contribution unless a question he suggested was inserted. Weissman, believing that Schmidt, Grinnen, and the contributors were active members of the John Birch Society, and that Grinnen eventually took charge of the project, expressed the opinion that the advertisement was the creation of the John Birch Society, though Schmidt and Grinnen have maintained that they were acting solely as individuals, A fictitious sponsoring organization was invented out of whole cloth. The name chosen for the supposed organization was the American Fact-Finding Committee. This was solely a name, Wiseman testified. As a matter of fact, when I went to place the ad, I could not remember the name. I had to refer to a piece of paper for the name. Weissman's own name was used on the ad, in part to counter any charges of anti-Semitism which had been leveled against conservative groups in Dallas. Weissman conceived the idea of using a black border, and testified that he intended it to serve the function of stimulating reader attention. Before accepting the advertisement, the Dallas Morning News apparently submitted it to its attorneys for their opinion as to whether its publication might subject them to liability. Wiseman testified that the advertisement drew 50 or 60 mailed responses. He took them from the post office box early on Sunday morning, November 24th. He said that those postmarked before the attack on President Kennedy were favorable in tone, those with later postmarks were violently unfavorable, nasty, and threatening, and according to a report from Schmidt, those postmarked some weeks later were again of favorable tone. The four promoters of the ad deny that they had any knowledge of or familiarity with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to November 22nd or Jack Ruby prior to November 24th. Each has provided a statement of his role in connection with the placement of the November 22nd advertisement and other matters, and investigation has revealed no deception. The Commission has found no evidence that any of these persons was connected with Oswald or Ruby, or was linked to a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. The advertisement, however, did give rise to one allegation concerning Bernard Weissman, which required additional investigation. On March 4, 1964, Mark Lane, a New York attorney, testified before the commission that an undisclosed informant had told him that Weisman had met with Jack Ruby and patrolman J.D. Tippett at Ruby's Carousel Club on November 14, 1963. Lane declined to state the name of his informant, but said that he would attempt to obtain his informant's permission to reveal his name. On July 2, 1964, after repeated requests by the Commission that he disclose the name of his informant, Lane testified a second time concerning this matter, but declined to reveal the information, stating as his reason that he had promised the individual that his name would not be revealed without his permission. Lane also made this allegation during a radio appearance, whereupon Weissman twice demanded that Lane reveal the name of his informant. As of the date of this report, Lane has failed to reveal the name of his informant, and has offered no other evidence to support his allegation, the Commission has investigated the allegation of a Weissman Ruby tippet meeting and has found no evidence that such a meeting took place anywhere at any time. The investigation into this matter is discussed in a later section of this chapter dealing with possible conspiracies involving Jack Ruby. A comparable incident was the appearance of the wanted for treason handbill on the streets of Dallas one to two days before President Kennedy's arrival. These handbills bore a reproduction of a front-and-profile photograph of the President, and set forth a series of inflammatory charges against him. Efforts to locate the author and the lithography printer of this handbell at first met with evasive responses and refusals to furnish information. Robert A. Surrey was eventually identified as the author of the handbell, Surrey, a 38-year-old printing salesman employed by Johnson Printing Company of Dallas, Texas, has been closely associated with General Walker for several years in his political and business activities. He is president of the American Eagle Publishing Company of Dallas, in which he is a partner with General Walker. Its office and address is the post office box of Johnson Printing Company, Its assets consist of cash and various printed materials, composed chiefly of General Walker's political and promotional literature, all of which is stored at General Walker's headquarters. Surrey prepared the text for the handbill, and apparently used Johnson Printing Company facilities to set the type and to print a proof. Surrey induced Klaus, a salesman employed by Lettercraft Printing Company of Dallas, whom Surrey had met when both were employed at Johnson Printing Company, to print the handbell on the side. According to Klaus, Surrey contacted him initially approximately two or two and a half weeks prior to November 22nd. About a week prior to November 22nd, Surrey delivered to Klaus two slick paper magazine prints of photographs of a front view and profile of President Kennedy, together with the textual page proof, Klaus was unable to make the photographic negative of the prints needed to prepare the photographic printing plate, so that he had this feature of the job done at a local shop. Klaus then arranged the halftone front and profile representations of President Kennedy at the top of the textual material he had received from Surrey, so as to simulate a man-wanted police placard. He then made a photographic printing plate of the picture, During the night, he and his wife surreptitiously printed approximately five thousand copies on Lettercraft Printing Company offset printing equipment, without the knowledge of his employers. The next day, he arranged with Surrey a meeting place, and delivered the handbills. Klaus's charge for the printing of the handbills was, including expenses, sixty dollars. At the outset of the investigation, Klaus stated to federal agents that he did not know the name of his customer, whom he incorrectly described. He did say, however, that the customer did not resemble either Oswald or Ruby. Shortly before he appeared before the commission, Klaus disclosed Surrey's identity. He explained that no record of the transaction had been made because he saw a chance to make a few dollars on the side. Klaus's testimony receives some corroboration from Bernard Weissman's testimony that he saw a copy of one of the wanted-for-treason handbills on the floor of General Walker's station wagon, shortly after November 22nd. Other details of the manner in which the handbills were printed have also been verified. Moreover, Weissman testified that neither he nor any of his associates had anything to do with the handbill, or were acquainted with Surrey, Klaus, Lettercraft Printing Company, or Johnson Printing Company. Klaus and Surrey, as well as General Walker, testified that they were unacquainted with Lee Harvey Oswald, and had not heard of him prior to the afternoon of November 22nd. The Commission has found no evidence of any connection between those responsible for the handbill and Lee Harvey Oswald or the assassination. End of Section 29 RECORDING BY MARIA CASPER